2 Samuel, chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counsellor, from his city, Gillo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death 
or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimeaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by then you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Thank you very, very much, Debbie. I think that the uh, younger folk are going to go out and have a look at that story. It is actually quite a gripping one. And thank you, Rob, for praying for us that we might make the most of it. And as we start, let's start with an honest admission. Don't Christians follow a really unimpressive leader? Isn't that true? Uh, We call Jesus king. That's our favorite word for him. 
But then young Jake on the doorstep was telling me, suffering doesn't make him look very strong. Uh, we say he did great things for us when he died on a cross. But a man on a cross doesn't look like an all-time winner. And look at his people. I mean, just look at you. Small, unimpressive. You might say, well, there are bigger churches in Dagenham, but hey, have you seen the size of Dagenham? What's the percentage? Are these people who follow an impressive king? Well, let me ask you. If the answer is yes, are you willing to follow an unimpressive king? Well, I'm hoping this little story might just help us to work that one out. Let me first introduce you to a very impressive king. His name is Absalom, and uh, he is the king's son. He is the first in line to the throne. And he is someone who is very impressive. We see that from the very, very beginning. He takes all the right boxes. So from the very beginning, he's got all the pomp that you would want. He looks like a statesman. He gets himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Well, here's a king that looks the part. He knows how to parade importance in front of his city. What's more, he manages to uh, get uh, people on his side. Uh, and he goes and he uh, calls to people and uh, uh, wants to uh, see what he can do for them. You can certainly see that he puts in the hours in verse 2. He used to rise early and stand beside the gate. And so the people could see a hard-working king. But he couldn't really claim to be a better king than David, because that would be treason. But he does claim to be a better judge. There won't be so, much, so many backlogs of cases uh, in verse 4. Uh, oh, if I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute might, or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. I could do this so much better. So he's not just got the people on his side, he's got the promises. I can outperform the present system. All politicians have got to say that. Otherwise, no one will follow. And he's got this wonderful uh, politician's touch, hasn't he? He takes a real interest in people. Uh, tell me, what city do you, do you come from? Oh, yes, I've got an uncle that lives there. Wonderful. How, how, how's, uh, how's the mayor? Uh, so good to hear that things are going well. It's a pity that things couldn't go even better if you just got the justice that you needed. He never told people that they'd got it wrong. He's always on their side telling them that they had a good case. If only he was there to help them to win it. Ah, that's smooth talking, isn't it? And so he wins out. And he's not formal. Yes, he's a king with his chariots, but he's not formal. He's friendly. Look at uh, verse 5. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. 
approachable. I want to really like that. So what's the end result? Everybody likes him in verse 6. So Absalom stilled the hearts of the men of Israel. And that's not the only thing. Because all the smart money, as they say in the city, were following him. So the bright ones, the smart ones, the new, the ones who knew how to back the right horse in the future, they were on his side. Take this bloke with the unpronounceable name called Ahithophel. I'm saying it now while I've still got my own teeth. Uh, but uh, it is just a, a very impressive guy. So uh, when he goes out to Hebron, uh, he, in verse 12, he sends for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. Let me tell you, this guy was the brains in the outfit. Uh, he never got anything wrong. We'll spend more time with him next week, but just turn over to next week and chapter 16. And um, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 16, uh, the last verse, 23. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was if one consulted the word of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. I tell you, following this guy was next best to following God. And if this guy was following Absalom, who do you think you ought to be following? If you had to make a quick decision on that one. I mean, look, David, in chapter 15, prays that God would make foolish the counsel of Absalom. Where does he pray that? Um, uh, yes, there it is in verse 31. David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Let me tell you that even David praying that prayer didn't make it happen. When he gives his counsel, you will see in the next chapter, he was absolutely spot on. Actually, in two chapters' time. Uh, he knew uh, what to do. He was a man who was smart. Even prayer couldn't make him less smart. This is the impressive king. And as I said, he is the one that everyone looked up to. You're meant to be impressed, okay? Now let me show you a weak king. Uh, the weak king is... Uh, a man called uh, David happens to be Absalom's dad, and he happens to be the king. Well, what do we find out about him in this chapter? He's absolutely clueless. He doesn't know what's going on right under his own nose as his son. He's taking four years, he's given it time to build up a momentum for his rebellion, and David hasn't the foggiest idea that that's what he's doing. That's where all the chariots and things are brought. He probably thinks, ah, he's next in line to the throne. Hey, look, young men are young men. You can understand young Absalom strutting his stuff. Ah, he's just uh, uh, showing off. Well, boys will be boys. 
and he doesn't suspect a thing. And even when Absalom uh, grabs a whole group of people and goes off to Hebron, and you might just think, well, he's nearly emptied half the city here. Why would he want to do that? Take so many people? But he's got 200 people who are loyal to the king, who haven't got the foggiest idea of what's going on. They're just sort of invited for the ride and they go. And so David would look at them and say, well, there can't be anything fishy going on. After all, these people would have nothing to do with anything that was slightly dodgy or underhand. So if they're going, it must be all right. And at least he is a man, my son, who's going to worship the Lord. That's why he's going. I've got a son who trusts God. He is faithful. He is going to keep his vow. He's going to obey God. Isn't that a good thing? What have I got to worry about if I've got a son like that? Clueless. Absolutely clueless. And when it comes to it, and Absalom starts his rebellion, and suddenly David finds out, David's absolutely helpless. In verse 14... He's got no other option apart from rapid escape. So, when uh, David says to his servants who are with him, just arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us. Go quickly. It's the best thing this king can do. Run. How weak is that? So, let me ask you, Forget the 20 pound note for a minute. But you've got the impressive king and you've got the weak king. But who are you going to vote for? Well, before you cast your vote, let me just show you a couple of things that you may not have noticed so far that aren't the headlines, but you might just want to think about them before you finally decide. The first thing to really notice is that actually he is the king. And as you look at this a little bit more closely, you see that maybe he isn't hapless. Although at that moment in time he is helpless, just look behind the scenes. So the first thing you see him doing is start planning. In verse 16, you notice that uh, the king left ten concubines to keep his house. Why do you think he would do that? Unless you're planning to come back. And then, what about the people? I don't think I put this as a box. No, I should, I should, let me, I'll get back to that. But I should have had another little box called people as well. Because it is interesting who left the city with David? In other words, who was on his side? And one of, the uh, one of the interesting things about the people on his side is that all his servants passed by, and that included uh, the 600 uh, people, um, sorry, the, 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 the servants who had followed David right from the start. Now, why would people who've known you for such a long time want to stay with you? Why would they love him so much? But they're not the only ones. 
because you've got these 600 people, the Gittites who'd followed him from Gath. Well, that's very interesting. Because Gath, in case you don't know, and you probably don't remember, is the, one, of the big, one of the five big cities of the Philistines. The Philistines were sworn enemies of uh, the Israelites all the way through 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel as well. The Israelites are the really bad guys. But now you've got 600 of them. That's not a small number. 600 of them following David. Now obviously they met him because he stayed there in 1 Samuel chapter 27. And it seems that they are now wanting to follow David as their king. What would make a former enemy want to treat this man as their king? And so David says, look, you know, you've only just arrived. Uh, look, you don't really owe me too much allegiance. Uh, I can only promise you a life in a desert, in the wilderness. Why do you want to come? Go back into the city. It's not too late for you to change your mind. And Ittai, their leader, uh, says in verse 19, uh, No, I'm coming. And he says that uh, in verse 21, As the Lord lives, as my Lord the King lives. In other words, this is now my Lord. Uh, this, your God is now my God. And as you live, wherever the, my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there will your servant also be. Astonishing loyalty from a man who once was uh, an enemy of God's people, saying this. Yeah, he's got people too. And as I was wanting to say, just you draw in that little box with you because I forgot to draw it in, but let me talk to you about the way that David still trusts God. Interesting, before he starts praying, you can see him trusting God because the two priests come with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was uh, a special box that symbolized God's presence. And in those days, people, in English we say, treat it like a, a rabbit's foot, like a lucky charm. If, if that was there with you, that was a good thing. But David, he trusts God too much to go for superstitious bib, bits and bobs. So he sends it back to Jerusalem. He says, look, I'm going to trust God. I will come back to it. It doesn't need to come with me. And then he tells the two priests, you two are going to be my ears and my eyes on the ground. Anything that you see, anything that you find out, you tell your two sons and they will come and tell me. So off you go. But then he trusts God when he's praying as well. And he certainly does that when he hears that Ahithophel, in verse 31, is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David prays, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Make this wise man a foolish man, please. And yet in that prayer, if you think that's a little bit uh, 
short. If you think it's a little bit uh, short of confidence, can I just ask you to keep a finger here and turn on to Psalm uh, 3, which is, I think, on page 488, 448, I think. Page 448 and Psalm 3. Now, I'm sorry, Alexandra, I didn't put that on the iPad. So, uh, uh, at this moment, uh, I gave, uh, I found this passage in Bulgarian in, uh, in the iPad. So, Alexandra's been all right until this point. Now, now she's, now she's, she's uh, working hard in English. Okay. What I want you to do, actually, all of you to work hard. And um, why don't we read this together? Because these are the words that David said. If you look at the top, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay, so you want to know what David wrote when he was on the run? This is what he wrote. Let's all, let's all read together. It will keep us awake on a hot day. And uh, it will show us how he's trusting God. Three, two, one. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all round. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, that's confidence, isn't it? That's not just uh, I'm on the run and I'm uh, fearing the worst. I'm on the run and I'm trusting God is really what he's doing. But look at this little thing about uh, verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now turn back to 1 Samuel 15 and to that cry in verse 31. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That prayer was answered in the very next verse. Because from the hill, yeah, God answered my prayer from the hill, remember, in Psalm 3, where while David was coming to the summit, that was the answer to his prayer, walking on two legs towards him. His name happens to be Hushai, and he's a smart bloke too. And David tells Hushai, look, would you go back and turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. Now, here's the interesting thing that David does. And this is something that I've been trying to learn this week as well. David has a wonderful way of preparing the ground so that disadvantage is turned into advantage. So, he sends the ark bank, and you might say it's a disadvantage for him to do that, 
But he turns that into an advantage because he has now people who are going to be there on his side who are living in the city when Absalom comes back to it. And with um, uh, Hushai, he turns what would have been a burden, because he actually says that, doesn't he? If, I, if you go with me in verse 33, you will be a burden to me. But what does he do? He turns a burden into a battle plan. You go back and you defeat the council of Absalom. That's what he says at the end of verse 34. And so, from my army days, uh, he sets up what we would call a comms unit. Um, uh, dear Charles here would probably uh, know what I meant. Um, he, was, he, he was kind of in the army as well. Um, uh, and Ibrahim, you were in the army, weren't you, at some point? Now, different one, but uh, uh, same thing. Uh, comms unit is where, oh, so communications to the rest of you, okay? The comms unit works like this. Hushai is to go back and uh, have his place in the palace. And what he would do in verse 35 is then any information he gets, he passes on to Zadok, Abias, the priest. And then whatever they hear in verse 36, they'll tell their sons who then come along until comms unit complete. Maybe David isn't such a loser after all, you might think. Now what can we learn from that? Maybe that you're someone who's not used to the Bible, not used to Christianity, maybe thinking about things from a fairly new start. And you might say, you know what? This Jesus, I don't think he's that impressive, really. <clears throat> My friend, what this part of the Bible tells you is be very careful who you are impressed by. Because the thing that this part of the Bible really wants us to understand is there happen to be two kings. Now let me tell you that the Old Testament, that's this part of the Bible, is there to get us ready for the New Testament. Logical? So far so good. King David in the Old Testament is God's special king to get us ready to understand Jesus in the New Testament as God's special king. And just as David had a prince trying to usurp his crown, so Jesus spoke of the prince of this world who was trying to make bigger claims than Jesus did. And like Satan, Absalom seems to be the real thing in terms of the good life that he offers. He'll look after you. 
He's got more to give you. He'll take care of you in a far better way than Jesus ever will. Just follow him. He'll give you so much more. He did that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And doesn't Absalom sound like an angel of light when he talks about wanting to keep God's will? Now, he wants to, uh, he says, uh, submit to God's will, keep his vow. The reality is he wants to supplant what's going on with his own authority. My friend, careful who you are impressed by. There are two kings in this world. And we will follow one or we will follow the other. There is no middle ground in between. But follow the right one. And although his people may not be all that impressive, you might just want to wonder why do people love him so much? Even though he doesn't seem to be impressive, why is it that he's a magnet? And he, that's what Jesus is today, right across the world. There isn't a country where he hasn't got his followers. And people used to say, the West is Christian. Last place of Christianity is the West. Everywhere else is Christian, except where people think the HQ is. And therefore, may I humbly suggest that you might like to be, if you're new to this thing, here's my humble invitation. Why don't you become like that Ittai, the Gittite, the one who was once an enemy of God's king in the sense that he did not do his will, but now wants to follow, even into an unknown future, Will you follow Jesus like Ittai in verse 21 and say, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there will your servant be. Will you be like that? Because, my friend, there are only two kings. When I became a Christian quite a long time ago, I stood as a merchant banker on Fenshire Street. I've been thinking about whether to follow Jesus or not. And I suddenly realized this very simple truth. That if I didn't follow him, I would in fact be following the interests of his enemy. Because Satan doesn't care who I follow as long as it's not Jesus. And so therefore, if I followed anything else apart from Jesus, I'm serving Satan's interests. That clinched it for me. And I became, I guess, an Ittai. And I'd like you to become one too. What happens if you are a churchy person? In other words, you've knocked around church before and a place like this isn't so unfamiliar to you. And you're someone who would sign the declaration that says, yes, Jesus is my king. 
But can I just point out to you that Ahithophel did that once. And just as David in the Old Testament is getting us ready for Jesus in the New Testament, so Ahithophel is getting us ready for Judas in the New Testament. He also used to be a keen disciple of Jesus and then found that Jesus wasn't quite impressive. Now, Ahithophel actually might have had a reason for doing that. Let's be fair to him. He is the grandfather of Abigail. Not Abigail, Bathsheba. And so therefore he would have known that David actually did not do well by his family. As I said, David is getting us ready for Jesus, but he is certainly not a carbon copy of Jesus. He has many flaws. And Ahithophel would have seen that, and he might have said, enough is enough. I want someone else. But Judas? Judas had no reason. And we'll see next week how when uh, 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 David uh, wrote about Ahithophel, Jesus took those words and used it to describe mm. Judas. We'll see that next week. But Ahithophel is someone who changed sides. And I think it's possible for church people to even change sides while they're still going to church. Because what happens is they don't see that uh, Jesus is going to bring in a greater future. They don't have that, that confidence, that far distant confidence in him. And they just look and they say, well, actually, the Christian life is a little bit of a, uh, a life on the run, a life uh, where other people don't like you very much and you've got to retreat and run away. And they say, well, actually, I'd much rather like the pleasures of this life. I wouldn't mind a bit more palace time if you don't mind. And so therefore we have the prosperity gospel, we have the kind of Christian offers that say, hey, come on into this kind of Christian fellowship, we know how to live it up and make life great. And we'll bring in the riches and all the position that you want. That's what Ahithophel wanted and it's on offer today in the church. Be careful who you find impressive. But what happens if you are someone who wants to be a genuine believer and you know that to be a genuine believer you have to follow a very unimpressive king. And the road that he's going on down the track for David in 1 Samuel chapter 15 as he crosses the Kidron Valley, as he goes into the Mount of Olives on the most miserable day of his life you might say, there's not going to be a throne waiting for him at the end. Now, my friends, can I introduce you to the king that he's getting us ready for? Because on the last day of his life, you will notice in John chapter 18, verse 1, I put the words up on the screen. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is after he'd had the last supper with his disciples, 
he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Exact the same journey, exact the same words, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered through the Mount of Olives, which David walked through on that last night. You look at verse 30, and you don't think that this is an impressive king. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And the people with him were feeling pretty down as well. That's David on the worst day of his life. That's Jesus on the worst day of his. The match is meant to be seen. And what we need to understand is actually whereas David, we'll see as the story goes on, did come back into Jerusalem and reign. Jesus died the next day on the cross. Because actually he had a heavenly city to reign in which was far greater than the Jerusalem he had left. David walked back out of Jerusalem to, Mount, to walk up the Mount of Olives across the brook Kedron in order to go into the wilderness. Jesus left Jerusalem after the Last Supper and he walked across the Kidron Valley and he climbed the Mount of Olives and walked, I guess, into that darkness that David walked into. David returned into the city. This unimpressive king was still king. Jesus, well, the story didn't finish with his resurrection either. And it will finish when he re-enters his world and claims it as its rightful king. Oh, you can vote now whether you want the impressive ruler of this world or would you want the unimpressive king? Well, there is a Christianity that is impressive but my friends, that's a different king. If you want the real Christianity you will need to listen to the words of Jesus who said, if anyone wants to follow me, follow me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. That's real Christianity. If I might say it like this, that is Ittai, the Gittite Christianity in verse 21. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, Wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. My brothers and sisters, would you make this your way of responding to the King? Unimpressive though he may look to many people now, would you keep your eye on his future? And will you live your life with him? for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death.
brings you together with the great King of Glory, as you will see him then. Let's have a moment when we pray individually, maybe just one minute, and then let me uh, pray uh, a prayer. words of a hymn that I think matches what we want to talk to God about today. Oh let me, it comes from a hymn called, O Jesus I have promised. Oh let me feel you near me, the world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever near me around me and within. But Jesus, draw still nearer and shield my soul from sin. Oh Jesus, you have promised to all who follow you that where you are in glory, your servant shall be too. And Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. Oh, give me grace to follow my master and my friend. Amen. Amen.